So daily practice elevates your instinct about the watercolor, especially. There's so much in watercolor that's instinct. So you can tell people that, but it's not the same as making them feel it. So that's why 30 days doing it every day. What can we do to get you into that zone where you are going to say to me, oh my God, I've made the best painting of my life and I don't even just came out of me so easily. How did that happen? It happened because you practiced every day. And now I don't have to tell you anymore. Now you understand it. Hello and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm your host, Nishant Jain. This is a show about drawing your world from observation and on it I speak with artists and hobbyist sketchers around the world who do this to find beauty in their everyday lives. I want to speak to you about the different ways we challenge ourselves to improve at the things we do. Have you ever set yourself an art challenge? Maybe it was to draw every day for a week, maybe a month. Maybe you wanted to learn how to draw a human figure properly. That one took me a few years. Maybe to just draw the face. That took me a long time too. Maybe the challenge was to complete a sketchbook from end to end. I say done, but maybe you've tried and you didn't make it to the end. It's happened that way with me several times as well. Having recently completed a self-imposed 30-day challenge, which I called 30 Days of Vancouver, I am full of reasons why every artist should periodically do the same. To do this, you could, of course, make up your own challenge, or you could join a community that already does them, and in this way have company and camaraderie in this uphill task. Today, I speak with Mark Tarot Holmes, about two art challenges that he has created and now organizes every year for a growing community of thousands of artists and sketchers all over the world. This episode is releasing on day 24 of 30 by 30 Direct Watercolor. Before we get into the conversation though, give me a quick moment to take stock of this show. As I inch closer to episode 50, I have become aware that I'm also inching closer to 100 hours of conversation. I counted and it turns out that I have released nearly 90 hours of conversation already. New listeners may not know this, but this show is an independent venture run by just me. I am the producer, the scriptwriter, the host, the editor, the social media intern, the guy who sends out emails to people to ask them to be on the show and then thanks them afterwards. I do all of those roles. I started the show because I wanted to learn and I thought it would be good to also share my learning with others. No one asked me to do it and actually there was no one to either give or deny permission. A lot of people did think it was not a very wise idea. I had my own misgivings as well. I mean, it's an audio show about a visual medium. So I get the hesitation. But nothing good comes from hesitations. Actions are everything. I picked a direction that I was sure of and I started walking without knowing 
what would be along my path. And here we are. 47 episodes, 90 hours, over 40 wonderful guests and thousands of listeners like you from over 50 countries. The show has grown and that means more work for me to do every week since that first week in September 2020. So this summer, like all your favorite media agencies, I, a media conglomerate of one person, am also reaching out to you about my membership drive. Help me meet my summer fundraising targets by becoming a sneaky art insider so that I can continue making this show. As I approach 100 hours of conversation, I'm trying to find 100 listeners who will commit to becoming sneaky art insiders. It's an ambitious target, and I have no idea if I can actually make this happen. Once again, it feels a little bit like that morning in early September 2020. There is so much I do not know. I only know how to do things. Become a sneaky art insider and support my dream to keep doing things. This episode was recorded on 7th April during my 30 Days of Vancouver project. It's one of only two times that I recorded myself during this period. The other recording was at the end on day 30 when I looked back to consider what I had accomplished in this time. So I think if you're so inclined, it would make for an interesting comparison to listen to this episode and then go back and listen to episode 42 and see how a project goes from beginning to conclusion. For those who do not know, Mark Taro Holmes is one of the earliest urban sketchers in the global community famous with the moniker Citizen Sketcher. He's written several books on the subject as well. In episode 23, Mark and I first spoke about his life and the many turns and decisions he has made at different stages to evolve and grow as an artist. I thought it was a most wonderful conversation we had that time, so please listen to that episode if you haven't. Today's episode begins as a general catch-up. It's a very stream-of-consciousness-like episode. I didn't make any plans for it, and I didn't even think about what we would discuss. With Mark, I know that there are always good things that will come up. He wanted to speak about 30 by 30 direct watercolor, and we'll get to that very soon in the episode. And I wanted to get some pointers and advice as I stood on day 7 of my own 30-day challenge. Why does Mark do 30 by 30 direct watercolor every year? How did it begin? Who are the people participating this year? And why is this kind of art marathon good for the artist? Let's find out. So, how are you doing? Good, and you? I am good. I'm staying busy this month. This month is my uh, 30 days of Vancouver project. So yeah. I've been I've been feeling over the past maybe five or six months that I tend to closet myself in my work and I'm not stepping outside enough. And because I'm doing so many different things, I'm not spending enough time simply drawing and simply being outdoors. So I spoke to a few people about it. Some of them have been guests on the show since then. And mm -hmm. 
I came at this idea that what I needed to do was find a way to push myself, not only to go outside, but also to, you know, do it so consistently that it becomes a part of my routine that I don't have to explicitly think about this job of mm -hmm, stepping mm -hmm. out to draw. So that's what I decided to do in Vancouver this month. Uh, the, the the day that we're recording is day seven. So right after we finish, I'm going to head to the waterfront and look at some boats and draw some people who are also looking at boats. Mm, boats are always hard. But yeah, so it's like uh, you're trying to get a habit forming thing going on. Yeah. yeah. So on a personal yeah. front, the idea is that I want to make it a habit and I don't want to make it a decision I have to take. Like I don't want to make it a big decision every time. I want to mm. make it super simple. And then as an artist, I really want to see more parts of this city. And uh, I tend to not let myself do that. I place work in front of me and tell myself I should be doing this instead. And that's just, I think, inertia talking, laziness. So this, the other aspect of doing this is to really push myself to see more of this part of the world and uh, travel by uh, public uh, transportation and really just be more in the city than mm -hmm. I have been before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and uh, I don't know how your COVID is doing, but uh, it looks like we're in a little trough maybe before it goes back up. So like, I sort of feel like I have to get out now because it's coming back. So <laughs> last little while I've been doing a bunch of going to figure classes and opportunities to get out while you can yeah w wonderful that it coincides with spring so we can finally get out absolutely i was yeah. uh it does feel like a lull and i wonder if we're going to have restrictions again sometime but this yeah, is the time to, to to grab and i'm glad to see that you're also you've also been stepping out you've been painting outdoors again mm -hmm. w was this the reason that you figured that this is like a brief window in time to be outside yeah, well, and so I have, like you, with your month thing, I have these seasonal things that come along. So we do the, the 100 people project that I do every year. So that's like the beginning of my year when that comes around. I have to start thinking, okay, time to get ready to get out. And that's just before, it's not really warm enough yet. So I usually start taking the metro and drawing people in the subway. Subway drawings are great because people are stuck, right? They They can't get away from you. <laughs> and visiting the museums and all that kind of thing. And that starts the juices rolling for the year. Uh, this year's One Week 100 People project was really interesting. You also had prompts in it. So tell me a little bit about it. Like, how's it been doing it for uh, as many years as it's been happening? And how do you keep it fresh for yourself as well as for the other people who are in it? Yeah, I'm trying to think exactly. So uh, was this the fifth or the sixth year? I should have had that in my head. But let's <laughs> just say it's the fifth year. So it started as just something I wanted to do for myself. So it's always easy. That's how I do everything. I mean, it sounds like your Vancouver is the same. You want to go out and see the city. So you're saying, how do I start something that will get me doing my thing? So I like the intensity of the week project. You can just really set everything aside and just do it for a week. That's mm -hmm. kind of my, that's how my mind works is that one project at a time. I can't focus on two things. <laughs> so uh, it's always a holiday for me. I'm putting everything aside, not going to do any work that week, not going to do any serious reading, just, just draw. And then, uh, you know, then the project is finding something fun to draw, right? Yeah. What do they call it? Nuit, Nuit Blanche is like the entry to spring here in Montreal. There's a 24-hour kind of arts festival downtown. Uh -huh. I usually go to that to get inspired about drawing people 
on location and then I start looking for anything I can find on the social calendar, like life drawing or maybe there's a dance performance or you know, all these things I would never go to. You know, like I would never go and watch a hip hop performance in the park, right? You'd say, ah, oh, that'd be cool, but you don't have time. Mm-hmm. So during this week, I have time for any crazy whim I can get my hands on. For you to do it a whole month, I mean, it's tough around work, right? How do you say to yourself, I'm going to do it no matter what? That That's a good question, actually. So let me tell you a little bit about the different ways that I'm doing this. So every day I go out to draw. Every day I draw tiny people specifically. The idea of drawing little portraits of people, other than all the other ways that it makes me a better artist and a better observer, the idea is that this is a a way by which a lot of non-artists in Vancouver and generally in the online communities where I post my work recognize me. They're almost like little icons. Like they're almost little graphic designs. So it does work like that, that it's your your signature and your brand at the same time, your little people. Yeah. So this is one aspect of it by which I hope to attract more attention towards my work. Being out in the city, in this city, which I am new in, I don't know many places here. So Mm -hmm. I'm trying to make a bit of a splash with art circles, with local establishments and businesses, coffee chains and things like that. So this is the other second. There are more. (laughs) Every evening I write a little post about what I drew this day and I put it on my Substack. I am emailing my readers three times a week during this project. So I tell them about the latest drawing I made, the most interesting thing I saw and any other clever observation around it. Yeah. People like the storytelling that goes along with the little sketch. And sometimes, you know, the sketch is what it is. Sometimes you get a good one. Sometimes it's not so much, but it's always better when it's with the story, right? The, the sum of the parts kind of thing. Yeah, Exactly right. Yeah. And this sort of line of thinking makes me think about the point of being an artist. Like it's not the technical brilliance or absolutely getting everything exactly beautiful every time that matters. More and more, as we see, a lot of the most successful and popular art in in our culture today is not necessarily technically the most brilliant. It's because it finds a way to connect with its audience. It's relatable and people are able to, people feel certain emotions when they see it. And that has nothing to do with our technical expertise. So part of what I'm also trying to do in this exercise by communicating it throughout this month with my readers and potentially new readers every week is that I want to see how I can connect with them. So What is the way in which we as artists, but also we as viewers engage with art? This is a question that is really relevant to me. And I think about it often, not only in terms of how do I become a more successful artist, but also simply in trying to make a case for my work. Why do I make art? What does art matter? And to be able to say this is why non-artists should care about art feels like Mm -hmm. an important part of having that larger answer. That's a big question and has a lot of different audiences, right? So a lot of what we do with Urban Sketchers is participation, right? So it's not even about uh, enjoying the art, really. Like everyone looks at other people's art and they love to see other people's art, but it's mostly fuel for them to do their own, like inspiration. Mm -hmm. So when you do an event... I assume you're encouraging other people to do it as well, or you're at least modeling how it can work. With my one week, 100 people, it's about the tight time limit. 
Can you get that goal of 100 people? We call it a week, but it's actually a working week. So it's actually five days that mm -hmm. we usually do it in. Uh, and more and more and more people are doing it in one day. People will get out and just, did you do it in one day? I think you did. Or Actually, this month I'm doing one day, every day of the right, month. Right, but did 100... you, oh, every day of the month? You're doing yeah. 100 people every day of the month? That's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. Okay, well, anyway, so what's what I'm saying is that there's that angle, like encouraging participation through a game. As you mm -hmm. say, the challenge of the endurance or of the speed. So for those people, they know why they love art because they, they love to do it. And then for the for the getting people just to look at it, yeah, that's different. And I, I think, you know, you have to, you're offering a story to somebody or an escape of some guy. I think people also just love the idea that you're doing it. Just mm -hmm. that you represent some freedom. Like, holy crap, this guy goes out drawing every day. Like, I would love to have the time for that or, mm -hmm. you know, the lifestyle for that. So you're... Uh, just like these other influencers that are going, staying in these beautiful hotels and right. they take all these pictures of themselves drinking wine in the, in the jacuzzi or something, right? So they're saying, look at this lifestyle. So we do that too. It's just the lifestyle of art that we're right. saying you could, you could have this if only uh, you <laughs> rearrange your whole life so that you have time to do it. <laughs> no, no, I, yeah. I absolutely agree. An aspect of this is something that I have articulated in my newsletter as well, is that um, I have the luxury of time that a lot of other people with their other jobs don't. So when I go to a cafe and I sit and I'm drawing tiny people, I'm sitting at the same kind of spot that you might sit at. But you don't have the luxury of time and I do. So therefore, it is partially my responsibility to help you to see the beauty in the thing mm -hmm. that you did not have as much time for. And I'm making it simpler for you to see it now through my work than you going there and putting yourself through the motions of being an artist. So, you know, uh, there's this quote, I think, I don't know if it's by Bob Dylan, but it was definitely in the movie about Bob Dylan. Mm -hmm. And uh, the character playing him said it, but it's possible they took creative license. And he said that you don't have to write poetry in order to be a poet. You could be a carpenter. Some people are car salesmen. Okay. And this, I, I saw this movie when I was 19, I think. And... It really hit me in a profound way then. And now I think about it in different ways. That is is only the artist, an art, like a practicing artist, is that what an artist is? And is there such a thing as the soul of an artist, but maybe not having the luxury or the time to practice mm -hmm. as an artist? <laughs> there was a, a phase in my life where uh, I took some crazy job and it was super busy with work, work. And there was a year, or I think even two years where I didn't draw anything to the point where one day I came in with some drawings and one of the other people that worked at the company, they actually said, I didn't, I didn't know you could draw because <laughs> all I was, was the office guy. But what happened weirdly at the end of that period, my drawings had improved, even mm -hmm. though I hadn't done anything because I'd spent the entire time really, really wishing I had time to draw, looking at art every day and really thinking about it, like studying other people's stuff. So uh, I don't say that's the way to learn or anything, but it was just interesting that I didn't, I actually thought that I got better just by thinking about it. So I feel that what you said is true, that you don't have to be practicing in the same way. You can, if you're, if you have the desire to be an artist and you're looking and thinking about it all the time, once you've started practicing, your mind is still 
to some extent working on it. I mean, it's not the same as actually still drawing, but mm -hmm. yeah, it's better than nothing. Yeah. yeah th there's this tendency, you know, as artists we have is to speak to other artists and it's, it's a solitary as a lot of creative professions are, it's a very solitary profession. So you spend a lot of time inside your own head and then the other people you speak to and you want to speak to are people who can relate to that kind of madness. So you speak to other artists. And I feel like this is something, uh, it's, it's, it's so useful, but it's also such a dangerous path to go down when you can only speak to other artists. Mm. And I look at the work of a lot of people I admire and I, I look at it in two ways. So firstly, when I really like the, the work of another urban sketcher or another painter whom I follow, I look at it as the person I am, as the artist uh, admiring someone's work. And then I give it a second take in which I think, what if I was not an artist? Why would I care about this drawing? Hmm. And I need to have an answer for that question because who is art for? Like, is the point of great art that it be understood by people who have made it their business to understand art? Is it meant to be esoteric and elitist? Or is it the job of great art to find a way to connect with the greatest number of people? Mm. Well, uh, that's very interesting because some art is meant to be elitist, right? There's, if we look at contemporary art, people will say, well, some of this material is advanced, like this kind of art, we, you can't be expected to understand it unless you've done some reading or you, you know the context of what's going on. So they'll just say, this is maybe less accessible art. What they're kind of saying is it's, it's actually intentionally elitist. It's the kind of art where you go in the museum and some people would say, I, I don't even think this is art. Like, what are these whatever boxes on the wall or you know, that's a rock in the center of the room. Where's the art? I don't get it. So, you know, it's very easy to just write that stuff off and say it doesn't reach people. So it's it's meaningless, right? Mm -hmm. But then there is plenty of art that does reach people. And there's like realism, for instance, right? Like if you're on Reddit, so you must know that guy Dylan who does those uh, incredibly beautiful charcoal and pencil portraits. Mm -hmm. And people just go crazy because they look so real. Yeah. Right. So that's super accessible. So then that's wonderful that anyone can look at it and be amazed at the magic of creating a person. But also, uh, maybe eventually it's there isn't anything else to say. Like it's yeah. just, oh, it's a perfect rendition of a person, or you've captured a uh, a mood perfectly or the the lighting or whatever, but but it's so perfect. Uh and it's so uh what you see is what you get, right? So then the elitist can say you know, maybe there's a, a group of people that need to think more to enjoy what they're at. Like, there's nothing wrong with being up here in the clouds thinking and, and pushing the boundaries of art. And maybe the audience is very small uh, or you're only speaking to your peers, maybe. Right. So I don't know. I'm just trying to be more inclusive as I age that each of us is doing the kind of art that we do right now. It doesn't mean it's the only audience we'll ever talk to. It doesn't mean it's the only audience that's worth talking to, right? We tend to sort of say, you know, I'm an urban sketcher. I'm all about uh, the people and all the rest of you guys. There's something wrong. Like you sort of say, you're not doing it right. I'm doing it right. You guys are not doing it right. And you sort of say that to yourself so that you can uh, be obsessed and be like 100% behind it, right? And then 
what happened to me is I started liking maybe to, to do a different kind of stuff. And then I'm like, wow, I've been in public and have made a lot of pronouncements of how a certain kind of art is the peak. <laughs> and now if I'm interested in something else, then was I lying back then? Or uh, how do I say, oh, I like this now. And all that stuff was all my student work or well, that's not true. I, I was 100% into it when I did it, right? So anyway, yeah, I'm rambling now. But your question of like, who is the art for? It's for who you want to talk to right now. I, I think yeah. that's a good way to put it, especially the fact that we all have many phases to our personality. We grow in different ways. And therefore, if our art is honest to us, then it will also change drastically over time. The things we look at, the, the way mm. we depict them, all of it is subject to change. So let's talk about One Week 100 People because it's one of the first projects of this kind that yeah. I had followed when I started to take my art seriously. And oh, it, cool. it did a lot for me. Maybe I tried it in 2018 for the first time. And it really helped me to break down what I was trying to do, how I was mm -hmm. trying to capture a person. So the goal setting of 100 people made it so that I wasn't just thinking I need to draw a lot. I was thinking I need to draw X number of people. And if I have only this much time, if I have only an hour, then it's not that now I can only draw five people. If the goal is 20, I have to now figure out how to draw 20 people right. in an hour yeah. and what We're, is the form that they will need yeah. to take in order yeah. to be drawn in an hour. So roughly whatever, three minutes per person, what does that drawing need to look like? And what does that drawing need to have in order to be complete in that much time? Right. So uh, I feel like a lot of people then take a lot of different reasons to come to this project. This was my reason. I needed to learn how to draw people. And I'm curious to know, especially speaking about this year's edition, what have been some stories that you've picked up from the participants? What kind mm -hmm. of motivations did they come in with? I think it's a big pool. and There's a lot of people doing it for different reasons. There are always some people that are a little more technicians, I'd say. They want to get a good drawing, like a good drawing, right? So they tend to draw a lot from reference and try to maybe improve their portraits. It's like uh, you're going to the gym and somebody's lifting heavy weights and somebody's doing cardio, right? So, um, yeah, I'm trying to propose this idea of doing it fast is an art in its own. If you start to worry about perfection, you start to go slower and slower, and then you get more anxiety about doing a good job, right? So I hope that the, what this event is, is it's appealing to the, the people that want to learn to loosen up, want to learn to capture the world around them as it's happening. So that's that urban sketcher idea. So I think a lot of the people that come are coming for that challenge. They want to add people to their journaling, say, like you're out at the beach and there's people around you. You want to add those people around you from real life, not just sitting in a cafe where they're stuck in front of you or on the subway where they can't get off. Those are the easy ones, right? So you have to get into that mindset of, I'm going to try a loose expressive drawing and I'll do 10 of them and keep only one so that I can get all the people while they're going about their business. You mentioned that we did a checklist this year. We put bicyclists uh, as well for that reason, because it's almost impossible to draw a bicyclist. You can't draw them while they're on the bike, right? So that that's the challenge. Like, do I do a little gesture every time I see a bicyclist and build up a mental idea of what a bicyclist is like? So then when I finally see one sitting at a stoplight, I can draw it. 
because mm-hmm. I have this library in my head? Or do I look for like those delivery guys? That's what I did. I looked for the delivery guy who's messing with his orders and he's he's standing by his bike for like 20 minutes and then I can get his kitchen. Right. So this idea of trying to get life while it's happening around you, that's I think that's the biggest draw for the one week. Right. Because it's about the time frame and because it's about the the deadline, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. And I've also said this to people who participated in a workshop, the last workshop I did, whenever that was, like I tell them, we're going to learn how to draw people in 30 seconds and 15 seconds. And by the end of the hour, you will be able to do that. And the goal of that, of course, is not that you always draw people in 30 seconds or that this is the best way to draw a person. Mm. but the ancillary benefits. So what I got from the first one week, 100 people challenge I did was all these things that form the circumstances of a drawing. Like, can I draw right now? The answer to that question, mm-hmm. that question should always be answered by a yes. Mm-hmm. I can. Yeah. The, yeah. The willingness to just start on a dime. When I see someone, you have, what, you, what you have to do is miss a whole bunch of drawings, like see a great thing and then you didn't do it. And then the regret builds up. And then you start to say, if I see it, I need to draw right now. So then there was a phase where I would walk around with a, a notebook in my pocket and mm-hmm. a pen in the other pocket and be ready to like draw anytime. So to get your week done, to get your 100 people in a week, if you don't do anything, if you don't, if you don't stop your daily life, right? If you still go to work and you still do the shopping and da, 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 you have to grab it in little two minute increments. So the, that's what I did the first year is just had the notebook in my pocket. We go to the grocery store, you have to stand at the checkout. Excellent. Two more drawings. We go to the bank, you have to wait for the machine. Great. Draw that guy, right? So, yeah, learning that uh, you have to jump from zero to 100 and just be drawing. That's something you can definitely learn from this exercise. I don't think there's any other way. I can't think of another way to get that in your head. Yeah. And jumping from this zero to the act of starting to draw, like you have to get over so many mental barriers, like, There's this hesitation, firstly, of can I do it? That's answered. You just push yourself to do it. The second is something that I really started to enjoy about my art once I started to get better at it was that suddenly there were all of these opportunities that other artists would not take advantage of. These scenes are not scenes worthy of art for them because the meaning of art for them is to take out a canvas or sorry, not a canvas, but to take out a palette to have brushes on hand, to have time on hand. Right. This idea that I am able to capture something that is too fleeting, too transient for a lot of other artists to capture, it helps me to reduce the cost of putting pen to paper. How much of a premium do I put to Nishant Jain putting pen to paper? Is it supposed to be a higher premium, the better I get? And I was also slipping into that tendency. And this sort of exercise helps me to knock that out of myself that no, just putting pen to paper should happen in a flash. There shouldn't be any cost attached to it. If you can get over the confidence part, if you can get over the fear of doing a bad drawing, right? Almost the beginner is afraid that they're going to look silly from doing a bad drawing, which is very easy. Just don't show people, (laughs) right? Or just, just do it for yourself, not for other people. And then the more experienced artists, is, I sometimes have this, I feel like, well, there isn't enough time to get a a, a good one I can sell or or publish, right? Like that one's not going to go in the book. 
So why would I do that if it's not good enough to go in the book or whatever project I'm working on? So you sort of feel like you suddenly you have this standard of professionalism, say, that gets in your way. I'm not going to do it because I can't make it portfolio worthy, right? So then if you go down that trap, you never start anything. Uh, well, or, no. or everything you do takes you 100 years and you're very tired working midnight shift, which is what artists do. <laughs> and so many people have done one week, 100 people over so many years. You've done it over so many years. And there are subtle differences in how we do the exercise every time, partly to do with our own schedule, partly to do with our mm. inspirations of the moment, the media we choose to use, etc. Um, I'm thinking about... And because I've done it this way, I've done it in a single session once. I did it in about an hour and a quarter uh, sitting at a cafe, but that was a particular style. So doing it in one day versus doing it in five days, what are some good arguments for actually doing it in five mm. days? Mm. Okay. Well, one thing I will say is I, I tend to try to do both, of course, that I, on the first day I try to get it done. And then I can feel like I've achieved the goal and then I can relax. So if you then try to do it in the advantage, of course, of taking more time, right, is you can pick and choose which ones you're going to labor on. So you can then go into color usually, right? For me, the next step is always, okay, I got the drawing. The next step is watercolor on top. So if I got my hundred banged off, then I can do say 20 or 30 good ones, right? It's almost like I had to buy myself the right to to waste time and you know i had to earn the privilege of now i can slack off and do a nice drawing where i spend the whole afternoon on it right so i guess between that is the sweet spot i guess when you say taking the whole week to just hit 100 that's another thing because that's the 20 a day model so then then it's learning you're learning a couple of things you're learning how do i actually fit them in my life so I get up, I go to school, I do my work. And, oh, it's 11 o'clock. I got to get my 20 drawings done. The next day, you're probably not going to do that, right? You you screwed yourself. So then the mm -hmm. next day, you're like, okay, I need to do some lunch, some at the coffee break. I'm in a Zoom call. I sketch the guy in the Zoom call. So it teaches you how to fit the drawings in into your life, whatever your, everyone's life is different, right? Everyone has different downtime. So We've done, this isn't for 100 people, but we've done some crazy things like on a, on a road trip, uh, my wife would drive and I would color, I would paint over the sketches. So we'd, we'd stop, I'd sketch someplace. Then when we got in the car, then I would paint. So then when we got to the next place, I was ready to sketch again. Because if I painted on location, I'm, I'm using my, my inputting time, right? The time to get information, I'm wasting it on coloring. If I color in the downtime, then the next location, I can get more information. So that, I guess you can do that in, uh, in 100 people by getting all your sketches and then coloring them at night. I've done that some, on some of them. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So that's the good thing about learning to pace yourself. How do you, what are your strategies to fit it in during the day and how do you beat procrastination? The good thing about doing it all in a rush is then you've won and you've, you've defeated the feel of failure, fear of failure, I guess, right? Yeah. And then uh, there's no good thing about just being too slow. That's that's ultimately what it's supposed to teach you is then if oh I didn't get to 100, maybe you had five really great drawings, but you didn't get to 100. So it's sort of saying like, I've changed the goalposts on you. You're like, but I have five great drawings. Well, mm -hmm. but you didn't get to 100, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, I also feel when I look at uh, the work of people who are doing this challenge, like there's the, there's the great Facebook group that uh, you founded. 
um that a lot of people are using it as a way to like you mentioned to challenge themselves to include people in their art and they don't typically include people in their art or they yeah. feel underconfident about drawing figures um so uh what what was it like for you right this this edition of it like what kind of art were you coming out of because this is a very interesting thing that from march 8th onwards for a week no matter what other art you make this is the art you're going to make if you're participating in this project yeah so this this uh, sudden switch is quite interesting to me what uh, can you tell me about yourself what were you coming out of what were you doing right before this and how did you switch yeah. on for one week hundred well people? so it was the pandemic and lockdown uh, montreal's had it fairly poor by pandemic we uh, you know constantly being locked up in our houses so when i started thinking about it it was in a lull and i'm like this is awesome we're going to be able to get out this year and go back to the street when it actually arrived it, it was conditions weren't as great as i had hoped um but like people hadn't quite yet started doing group activities so a lot of the like the museum was still closed i think and a lot of the club activities just weren't happening so uh so but my idea was this is going to be a celebration of getting back and and drawing from the real world. So what I ended up doing is just uh, drawing on the subway uh, and uh, the, the food fairs of the, we have this underground mall. So even when it's cold, you can, you go into this mall and all the streets are connected in these underground tunnels. So I'm from uh, Alberta and in Calgary, they have an above ground version. There are these bridges, glass bridges. They're on the second story and they connect all the downtown buildings. Mm-hmm. I think that's way better because you're out in the sunlight. But here in Montreal, they did it at subway level. Right. So you can be down there with your sketchbook and there's there's just people going about their workday. They're in the cafes. They're going from business to business. Uh, the opera and the uh, modern art gallery is connected to that. So you have tourists in there and people, you know, so there's no shortage of people. So that's how I did it. Uh, I ended up doing a whole bunch of pencil drawings and then sitting in a cafe and, and, and painting the color. But what's happened with... 100 people is for me it's the curse of the organizer i start to feel like i have to present to people something maybe some teachy stuff some educational stuff so this year i said i was going to learn to get better at uh, little how-to videos Mm -hmm. so i did a video every day Mm -hmm. uh, which i have not done previously and that takes up most of your drawing time so uh but i said to myself i've done it I mean, I know I can do it in one day. I've done it so many times in one day now. It's kind of almost pointless to do it again. For a beginner, absolutely, you should try this. This is a challenge. Can you make it to the end of the marathon? When you've done the marathon enough times that it's a, it's in the bag, then you have to look for something more interesting. Or, right. Right. What's your next challenge? So I ended up, I wanted to be out on the street drawing on these people. What I ended up doing was drawing under this video camera in order to, to make this thing to offer <laughs> to people. So, uh, you know, I, I enjoyed doing it. Uh, it was a fun challenge and people certainly love to see how the watercolor, you know, to see the watercolor going down under the camera is better than any hundred pages of written explanation. So I'm glad I did it, but then I sort of regretted that I didn't actually have any, you know, I didn't have as much fun. Right. <laughs> uh, but also it wasn't the time anyway, because all the, like I said, everything was still shut down. Uh, people are still not sure whether they should be getting together. Like we had, 
I went to Urban Sketchers because we decided to do it, but uh, then it's like, should we wear masks or not? And, you know, should we go into this restaurant or not? So, yeah. But Urban Sketchers here in Montreal, I'm sure it's the same everywhere. It tends to skew a little older mm-hmm. to the group, right? It tends to skew towards the retired people who have time. So we're a little more cautious than the general yeah. population. About yeah, yeah, COVID. yeah. That, yeah. That, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, what what was the experience like? What did you gain from the how-to videos? I'm curious to know because making videos is one of my goals also with this project that I'm doing now. Yeah, I mean, it's an entire, that's an entirely different skill, like uh, doing a sketch. So I don't know if you've done a lot of demos in public, like when I'm drawing in front of an audience, it's it's very hard to talk and draw at the same time, I find. Uh, and I think that James Gurney had posted some brain science about this, that the the part of your brain that lights up when you draw is the same part that lights up when you talk. So you literally are using the same parts of your brain. Mm-hmm. I think it has to do with storytelling, that you're you're trying to compose what you want to say in your head. You're also trying to compose the drawing. So if you listen to anybody talk and draw at the same time, they start to talk slower and slower. And there's these long pauses and they lose their, yeah. And so what happens is your demo drawing is always like 30% worse than the drawing if you were concentrating. So trying to video and draw is twice as bad because you're worrying about your lighting and your did I try to start the camera and right. you know the, the thing runs out of batteries and then this and you can't reach over here because the cord's in your way. So you have to you have to get so good at the videoing, just like demoing, you have to get so good at the talking that you're past that obstacle. So because we think this way, I said the goal is let's I'm going to do 100 videos or whatever, right? I set myself a goal. Like, I just have to blow through this like a pianist doing scales until recording is such second nature. Exactly. That it doesn't, because, you know, previously, every time I did a demo under the camera, it would be not a good enough painting. Like, I have this awesome painting over here and then this weak demo. (laughs) So then I'd be saying, well, this is what I meant to draw. And then here's some footage. Yeah. So you have to, that, that was good for me. It was personal development, right? To, to, to grow into that. Yeah. Yeah. Plus also this whole social media stuff, I'm trying to learn how to be a better Instagrammer. I don't know why, but it's just sort of a hobby. And that's a whole different kind of video because they're so short, right? Like they're, it's not, uh, you're not rambling about your process and what brush you use and whatever, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Actually, these two med- uh, these two formats of videos are very interesting to me. Uh, they've come up in recent conversations also. So um, I don't know if you've seen uh, Paul Heaston's TikTok. I but... do not look at TikTok. It seems like one more thing to so, uh, bring it to my life. I, in, uh, when we recorded, uh, I recorded with Paul earlier this year and I made the case for TikTok. And yeah. that's how he started TikTok. And he has millions of likes on TikTok now. It's yeah. doing super well for him. But I, I have, I, I, I can make, I feel like I can make an effective case for TikTok over Instagram. And Okay. Uh, the, so my the understanding of TikTok is it's the lip syncing platform. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, TikTok <laughs> is fascinating because it became really big because of lip syncing and choreographed dancing. And that's the most popular stuff, I guess. Like the surface of the pop, the pop culture on TikTok tends to be towards things like that because that's how you can uh, tie in music, right? Because right. Uh, musicians promote themselves on TikTok, and TikTok is 
really important to uh, even the largest artists in the world like your song can be very very good but can it fit into a tiktok rhythm is actually a legit uh, creative concern now because that's the next level of fame there are many songs that are famous because uh, they caught or they were perfectly suited to a tiktok trend and therefore got used by millions of people and now the song and the singer are both famous and it has right. very little to do directly with the beauty of the song for example but anyway my my uh, case for tiktok as an artist and as any kind of you know as a, a drawing or painting creative is that people on tiktok uh, go in with a certain mindset which is a little different from how they go to instagram and the difference is that instagram is even though now they're leaning into reels it's largely the static images and people are tuned to scrolling very fast but what tiktok has done and now instagram has imbibed it through reels and let's see if that goes as well is that it has made a case for 30 second content so if you can do a good job your viewer is prepared to give you up to 30 seconds or 60 seconds even but 15 30 and 60 second blocks mm-hmm. and that is maybe 150 or 300 times more than the typical instagram post where you get like 0.1 seconds from somebody before they like and they scroll past yeah so my first case for tiktok is that you might get up to 15 seconds which is unreal which is crazy the second idea that i really i, re- I really think videos are interesting because of exactly what you mentioned about the difficulty of demoing and you know talking while drawing so live demos have this difficulty like you mentioned and being of a certain like even me being of my generation we have a certain notion of what video content needs to be in order to be good enough mm-hmm. and i think of it very similar to how my parents generation thinks about text messaging or when text messaging was still a new thing they got onto it saying hello etc person yours truly blah right, blah blah writing a letter yeah writing yeah. a letter and even emails writing a letter and you don't need to do that and people like me who were comparatively digital natives would tell them you don't need to do this this is an old standard it doesn't apply so the word is uh, skeuomorphic so it is it is a set according to an analog idea of the how things should be but it doesn't quite translate to the digital realm in the same way and similarly tiktok videos have taught me that videos didn't need to be produced the way i thought they needed to be made and mm-hmm. i was putting an unnecessary amount of burden on myself so my first idea of videos before tiktok was that i needed to be talking and i needed to be recording and i needed to be drawing and all three things needed to happen at the same time so when you're demoing in this way there's a performative aspect to what you do you feel like every stroke of your brush needs to be definitive it needs to you know <laughs> it needs to elicit those oohs and ahs from your audience every single stroke otherwise you're boring them and they'll turn away this is what instagram has done to our brain they'll go away may do something exciting they'll go away yeah so uh but looking at tiktok i've come to realize that firstly i could add the voice much later i could just record myself drawing and just peacefully right. do the drawing and i could add the voice later yeah, secondly absolutely. i am free to not share the entire video in fact it's better if i don't share entire videos it's better if i share 15 second 30 second chunks of it which have been cut up by the algorithm or cut up by me 
to go to the exciting parts. This helps me to keep the message simpler at the end when I add the when I add my voice on top of it, and it helps me to just draw in my own way. I don't feel like every every time I put the pen to the paper, that stroke needs to be impressive. Right. I can just cut to the interesting bits. Yeah. 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 That, that's what I've been doing is uh, uh, just videoing the entire painting and plucking out the ooh moments. Like this is when I did yeah. that big thing and it bled across the page while I plucked that one out. That goes on a little video. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, because uh, you were talking about your art, about this, what we're presenting to the audience. So uh, the difference is in the past, I used to make videos thinking like this is going to be some sort of downloadable lesson because I had done these online classes where mm -hmm. everything was like about structured teaching. And so mm -hmm. you had to do this module and then this module. And then, this. But really what you're trying to do with this type of social media is just show the joy of painting, the beautiful splash of color or the the point where it all comes together. It's not really as informative for someone and it's not supposed to be. It's more about inspiration and 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 uh, seeing the art happen live. It makes the art more compelling than just seeing the art. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. you know, like watching the drawing. Like if you see a couple of moves, da -da -da -da, and the drawing comes together, that drawing is sweeter than if you just showed them the drawing. Right? Exactly. I think. So you're really uh, you're you know those guys that do this. The space drawings with spray paint. I sit <laughs> on the sidewalk and they go, <laughs> and then, wow, it's a planet. Like, it's a performance. The production of the thing is a performance. And there Indeed. are these other painters, they'll paint this thing, and you're like, ah, whatever. And then they turn it upside down, and it's a whole mm -hmm. scene. <laughs> so it's kind of gimmicky. And I could see people saying, I don't like, I don't like that this is where art is going. But it all is also our current psychology, the way we consume media. It is how people are thinking. So maybe there's something to it. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, this you're, you're speaking about very particularly performative art productions. Like these are, uh, especially the people who are doing it uh, on the sidewalks, they are doing it in order to, not that that painting necessarily will sell, but that while watching me make it, somebody yeah. will give me tips. Yeah. So there's yeah, throw there's a, a hat out. Coin in the hat. That, yeah. So no, if they just had the painting there, maybe no one would buy it at all. But they're sure able they to. Yeah. And so what this does is that the final painting, maybe it's $50, maybe it's 100 or 200 something, some number like that. But a tip can be $1. It can be $2. So getting $2 from 25 people while you are drawing for an hour versus trying to get $50 from one person after you have... Yeah put your painting there for someone to buy yeah. and which is the more difficult thing and which is the like I the the incentives are interesting to see here because they're different from that of a pure artist yeah and it's I, interesting whether it de does it in fact devalue the art so the artist could say I want people to buy my paintings because that's where my value is right it's it's insulting they won't even buy my paintings they just they just want to come and look and vampire off of me or you could say, I mean, honestly, people today don't need your paintings. Like, <laughs> there's so much imagery in the world. What you're actually doing is you're interacting with them. You're you're doing something with them, for them, uh, in the way of a musician or a, a street poet or whatever, right? Like, you're on the street performing for these people. Mm -hmm. So, 
uh, it's a it is a different mindset. And if you are if you went into it thinking about galleries and paintings, and I'm going to get ten thousand dollars from a painting, uh, you know that was my life goal for a while. I said to myself, I need to make I need to sell a painting for ten thousand dollars before I die, or I will have been a failure. Um, but I actually think that the world has maybe moved on past that point for most artists. It's a uh, people don't have room in their house people don't have money like younger people don't have the money to be thinking about artwork uh you know and they don't like if you're living in a roommate situation you're not talking about paintings on the walls you're just like we're just you're lucky if there's a big tv you know right so there's a whole chunk of the world that you talked about elitism just saying i want you to buy my painting is a is an elitist stance Right. Yeah. So, yeah. I've yeah. I've sort of felt that as well. And the comparison I think which is interesting is to look at uh, musicians. So there are a lot of musicians today who make way more money from live performances than from uh, sales of their albums. Right. Yeah. And to say that uh, to for me to claim that buying the painting is what needs to happen is like me insisting that no, you need to buy the album. Uh, live sales don't count or concert sales don't count. And mm-hmm. that's not fair. Like pretty much every DJ in the world makes money from performing, not from selling uh, right. CDs yep. or yeah, exactly. any other format of their music to people. Yeah. Yeah, so similarly with art, and I think this has to do with how uh, how we consume art. So just like you said, like for so many people, it's difficult because, well, look at my situation. I've moved 10 times in the last 11 years. Uh, well, you're a little, things. you're your own thing. <laughs> uh, it's difficult for me to, like, we actually have one framed painting, like properly framed painting. And let me tell you where it lives. It lives in our storage because, <laughs> yeah. because we're renters and we can't put up big pins in the walls and we can't have heavy paintings that we need to take off and go. And so we have things on the walls that are easy to remove. That is the first criteria. If it's going to go on the wall, can it be taken off easily? And secondly, the fact that we now have access to so much media in across so many uh, formats, like there's the phone, there's all, there's infinite screens and there's infinite access at the moment that I want it. So the meaning of buying a painting is a different kind of ask. It's not the way that they get to enjoy the painting. That's not true. And that used to be true before we had screens, but now it's not true anymore. Right, because it was the only, when that was the only game in town, was looking with your eyeballs, then you could say the original mattered, right? But now, yeah, especially if you're a drawing or a watercolory kind of artist, in, watercolor actually looks better on the screen than it does in real life it, because <laughs> yeah. the lighting is perfect. And especially if it's video and it's moving, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Indeed. Yeah. So, uh, like, I I now think about my book buying habits, and how it's happened for me is that I will buy an ebook first. My first, uh, my first way to read a book is that I'll consider buying the ebook. Yep. And I'll only buy the physical copy if I really enjoyed having already read the book, and I feel like this needs to be part of my life, like it needs to be on my shelf. Mm. And that is a complete reversal of how I used to, how I grew up reading. Yeah. And it's an interesting way to think about 
how we decide to spend money on physical objects now, especially now that so many things can exist in our digital or our virtual universe. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. You move enough times and you stop buying books. That is definitely true. Yeah. But yeah. And the, I mean, I don't know. I think a lot about whether people are going to be hauling all this stuff with them every time they move around because we've moved a lot as well. So and uh, when I had this, we've recently just shut down an oil painting studio. For a while, I had an apartment that uh, was just for painting because we'd inherited an apartment. Um, so we just kept it in, and and did that. And the walls were full of paintings. So when we decommissioned that and got rid and sold it, uh, I had to bring like 300 paintings into the house. <laughs> so by, believe me, it was very difficult to get them stored. Uh, so yeah, I, I almost, that's one actual factor why I recently slowed down on oil painting is I don't have anywhere else to put them. Uh, yeah. Though yeah, they're yeah. gradually every, every once in a while I'll sell one and then I have room to paint another one. <laughs> have, have you, have you had the chance to visit the Vatican museum in Vatican city? Not in, no, not that. No. Yeah. So yeah. that is probably the way that you can display your paintings now if you have so many because they have paintings on every square inch of the wall right and the ceilings and the pillars yeah, and the ev- like it feels like every style. square yeah. inch of this whole space yeah. is paintings yeah well if if i should have been in the living room that's what our wall looks like now but yeah <laughs> yeah so it's kind of crazy and you can't really expect that out of most people though so i was i did enjoy that latest um that movie tenant Mm-hmm. Uh, who's the guy? Uh, Christopher Nolan. Christopher Nolan. Uh, whatever the movie was good, but it's set in this uh, art art shipping location. These things mm-hmm. that are called freeports. So there are these uh, enclosed spaces that are usually at an airport now or a, a seaport that aren't in any political zone. So they're not in this country. Or they're like, like you mentioned, the Vatican or whatever. They're like an embassy. So the art goes into this storage unit. Uh, and it never leaves or enters the country. Another person will buy it, and it just moves from one storage unit to another storage unit. <laughs> so the the elite have this art that they never physically stand in front of, and it never physically goes from one hand to another as they buy and sell it. They know they own it. Presumably, they've looked at digital copies of it, but it doesn't, you know, maybe on some special occasion, they have it shipped to their house for a big party and then shipped back to the storage. So that's... It has nothing to do with the movie, but it's part of the setting. So I was interested in that. Yeah, yeah. I was reading this really brilliant article about uh, why the title was Why is Art Expensive? So why is fine art priced the way it is? Why should a Van Gogh be worth millions of dollars? Mm. And the ecosystem in which this works. So one of the the tidbits in this was that uh, art dealers will not simply sell to you because you have the money. So there are lots of very, very rich people who are not able to buy a Van Gogh, even if they can afford 20 or all all the Van Goghs in the world, simply because they want uh, art to remain in circulation. So there's the whole circuit of these uh, free ports then leading to the museums where they will be displayed for a few months yeah. and then another museum in another part of the world is having a Van Gogh exhibit so the paintings will go there and the what is the meaning yeah. of ownership in all this like ownership exactly as you point out is not about having it on your wall and being able to show your friends 
And therefore, if you have it on your wall, the fact that it can potentially even uh, be degraded, it can, uh, you know, degrade over time. Like it will have the effect sure, of wear and tear of living in your house. Yeah. What if your yeah. house burns down, etc. Yeah. But the fact that as the owner, you might only have it in your home for, you might be allowed to have it in your home only for a very precious little amount of time <laughs> for maybe one evening, but then it's back out. The, the deal is, having bought it, that you will allow it to go to the Art Institute of Chicago, you will allow it to go to the MoMA in New York right. and uh, uh, be exhibited everywhere else. And presumably so you want that as the owner because y your name is floating around with this thing. That, yeah. I, yeah, I was, re I was reading an interesting thing about uh, some of the more, some younger collectors that they go in with a more uh, sort of self-aware attitude that, say for instance, I'm a young black professional, I want to buy art by black artists or a person who's going to go into female artists only. Like they say, this is the category I want to own art in. So it's not even, I mean, yes, you must, you probably like the artwork. You probably buy what you like, but it's not that this is a nice painting. It's that I have a collection that I'm building and that collection is a packaged exhibition. So, you know, the, the Holmes collection that reflects this social issue is ready to go to a museum. And so they're, they're really thinking in terms of the sort of footprint of the art historical footprint of what they're buying. Uh, a collector yeah. as a curator in a yeah, sense. Yeah, right. Curation. Yeah. So I think possibly that feels modern to me that sort of, uh, uh, like you say, it has more to do with what gallery is it moving around rather than it's in my house on my walls. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it it's it feels like this is also I mean, and this has been happening for a few decades at least, but this is also a very different understanding of art from what even we have as artists. We think that our painting is or our drawing is going to live on somebody's wall, but that's not where the greatest work ends up. It spends a whole lot of time in uh, in shipyards and in storage. Yeah. So, uh what then becomes the art and what you know what is the thing that has the value it's not even literally looking at the art that has the value that it does it's all these abstract things around it but of course i don't know that that's gonna be any maybe hopefully that is becomes you i don't know if that's gonna be me at this stage in life that my pieces will ever be in that world right so there's also you have to have a little bit of i don't resistance to these ideas that some of it is fake, right? Some of it is that the piece, the piece doesn't even matter at that point. There are artists that create something that just becomes a pawn in this game. So it's Absolutely. been made, made to be purchased and made to be moved around, as you say. And it doesn't, there, there's a certain amount of exploitation, I think, and a certain amount of... Uh, just it's a financial instrument at this point. Indeed, like, it's, yeah. there's a large part of it is actually just money laundering. Yes, you're sure, literally the legal aspect of it. I mean, I admit I don't understand fully the issues of what's going on with NFT-driven art, but there is this whole other envelope around it about investing and uh, exchange of these pieces after you buy them. The only good thing about, just to, since I brought up NFTs, it's that same kind of shell game to some extent. But the only good thing about it is this idea of these durable contracts where the artist mm -hmm. can, um, every time it, it exchanges resale, hands, the uh, artists can yeah. retain Artists some, get up yeah. to 10% on resales. Yeah. I think that's yeah. the only aspect of it that I've really liked so far. 
But indeed, just like a lot of fine art, I think the vast majority of NFTs today are instances of clever money laundering. Like there's a lot of it going on. I want to now talk about 30 by 30 direct watercolor. But yeah. before we get into it, let's take a quick break. Let's uh, drink some water, get some coffee and okay. maybe have a couple of minutes off the air okay. before we get into that. I noticed yeah. that we got on and then we just started talking. Like I didn't, I didn't, I didn't <laughs> kind of greet you into the show at all. Hello, listeners. I hope you're enjoying our conversation so far. I wanted to pause here for two reasons. The first, of course, is so that both Mark and I could have a breather. But the second is so that I could thank my lovely sponsors. My sponsors, of course, are listeners just like you. Wonderful people who buy me coffee from time to time and those who sign up to become sneaky art insiders and commit to supporting this show. If you enjoy what I do, if you have heard a couple of episodes or more, maybe you've heard them all. I think a part of what you enjoy is me being able to do these conversations exactly the way that I like. I take the time I like, I go down rabbit holes of my own choosing, I let my guests speak, I don't unduly edit. It's the way I like to do things, and it takes a lot of time and effort to do them just right. If you appreciate this hard work, and I think you do, please consider becoming a Sneaky Art Insider. Insiders commit to supporting me at the rate of just one cup of inflation-adjusted coffee per episode. That's all I ask. If the show means that much to you, become an insider and help keep it going. Thank you very much for all the time and attention you give me, and I appreciate every single listener. Let's get back to the conversation with Mark. Welcome back to the show, Mark. Good to speak to you again. And I have I initially thought we were going to speak for like a half hour or 40 minutes, but we haven't even gotten to the meat of what I wanted to talk to you about. So oh, wow. Well, it was just... interesting anyway. We can, <laughs> our, this is the show of diversions, maybe. Yeah. Side jaunt show. <laughs> so this this particular conversation is even more um un, unplanned or let's say un unput non not put together as compared to my other episodes because um my idea was uh, tied into this project that I'm doing 30 days of Vancouver right. and I wanted to speak to someone who has done a similar 30 days project and you run the 30 by 30 direct watercolor project every year right. and I wanted to get some ideas from you about it, not only for use for myself, but also to offer to my readers who are also listeners so that they don't have to spend all 30 days just looking at my drawings. But <laughs> hey, here's someone who's who I'm talking to. Maybe you can listen to us talk. But before we get to 30 by 30, uh, yeah, independent artists, both of us, and we're trying to play different tricks and different games in order to simply be able to keep doing what we want to do. So tell me a little bit about uh, how you're thinking about the coming years, how you're thinking about ideas of patron or not patron, but other parts. What what are some thoughts for you? Well, for me, it's been books. Um, so I kind of came in at a time when 
Well, and, and online classes, which are just another kind of book. But I came on at the time when it was print publishing. You would write a book and everyone's like, oh, now you're famous because you have a book out there. So it was quite lucky for me that I could that I could write something where there was a lot of public interest with the, the Urban Sketcher was my first one. Um, so I always think in terms of, of uh, what can I do that would be of interest to people that that I want to do. So it has to be two things. I have to want to do it or I won't do it has to be obviously it has to be something that's my, my my brain so if i'm interested and i can actually deliver on it and it's then they're interested in it then the diagram venn diagram overlaps then there could be a, a book in there right so although i haven't put anything out recently because uh well for the last couple of years we haven't been doing any urban sketching but also i'm i personally my own interests moved on to gallery painting for a while and and I felt that that wasn't something that I was ready to teach people until I, I did it for a while. So anyway, I'm rambling. But the thing about 30 by 30 is it's it's a part two. So 30 by 30 direct watercolor. I started it because I did this book, Direct Watercolor. So I wanted to, like, let's get together and let's do this this thing, which is, you could call it a la prima watercolor. But I didn't like that term because it tends to be associated with oils. That uh, and what does it mean literally? Like all at once, I believe that means translates as all at once. So uh, certainly, the way I like to do watercolor is also just a la prima. You just go right in and you do it in one sitting. Not no, uh, not like layer. The there's that kind of watercolor that's like infinite transparent layers, and it just builds up very slowly. Well, you can't do that as a location sketcher that's going out in the world, right? Like the weather doesn't cooperate, and you don't have time and you don't have enough water <laughs> typically so yeah so i wanted to create an event that celebrated the content of the book and then maybe i would get another book out of it by doing it for enough years that i'd have all this material to talk about right so there's always an element of self-interest like how is this fueling my my publishing career or whatever right because like we talked about with art the what is the meaning of the piece like the the book people get something out of it they get you buy the book you learn something it's for it's for i buy the book for me right uh so i i really see a much more honest relationship i'm giving you value when i do that so with the event i don't even think it's about my drawings i'm like the coach so i'm just you know if you get a coach at the gym they don't even lift any weights they just yell at you while you lift weights right so I could, I could, that's, I could just do that. I don't even have to do any drawings. I'm just there to encourage you to do the drawings. So I don't know whether you're doing that with 30 Vancouver. It seems to be right now for you to explore the city, right? For, for you to go out and do your thing. But eventually you've done it. You've done it after the fifth year. It's more about uh, encouraging other people to, to go. So you could have, say, for instance, a map of Vancouver. Here's all the places I've drawn. And so it could be like a giant treasure hunt to, hit all those places and get your drawing from those check off the list or it could be like draw your neighborhood your your street in vancouver and we put it all together into a book say so like 100 participants she did that as i actually did that very thing as an urban sketchers workshop everyone drew a different view of this location because usually all the urban sketchers line up in front of a building and we all paint the front of the building or whatever it is statue because we want to sit and talk together but I'm like, no, everyone must draw a completely different view. And I had assigned all these different spots. 
So they all go there drawing, they all come back. And in 30 minutes, we did a, like a total documentation of this site. Cause you had a hundred different things. Somebody did the entrance, someone did the view from the very top. Someone did the view in the basement, someone did the back of the building. So you get this, uh, an opticon you couldn't possibly do. So maybe that's something for a Vancouver based drawing event. Right. So that's what I think it is, is what it should be about. What do the participants get out of it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That has more legs that has more value to people or whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that that's a good way of thinking about it. Uh, one of my goals with this project is also that at the end of thirty days, I have enough material for a book. Yeah, uh, but no, I think it might take more than one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's uh, now a book also means so many things, right? Like uh, I was writing, I was putting together a nonfiction book proposal a few years ago when I was thinking about traditionally publishing a, my first book of sneaky art. Uh, pre-pandemic, of course. Uh, I eventually ended up not doing that. I eventually decided to choose independent publishing and selling it myself on yeah. my website yeah. and uh, myself through my own events. And uh, I think a part of that had to do with thinking about the audience of the book. So uh, part of the audience of a book about watercolor is, of course, uh, when I say book about watercolor, automatically it becomes people that are interested in watercolors, people that are either hobbyists right. or artists trying to get better at something, Yeah, uh, right. someone trying to pick up paints after many years. So that becomes the audience. And then the interaction or the equation between the art, uh, between the book writer, the author and the audience is also this. It's instructional. I'm I'm going to teach you something. I'm going to give you, impart some skills to you that you want. Mm -hmm. And therefore you buy this book because then you'll learn how to paint or whatever things. And I, I, I sort of feel like in my case, I don't want to do that. Like mm -hmm. I don't want to, uh, and I thought of this when I was putting together this book proposal that I ended up not sending to any pub, any literary agents. I decided, I concluded, like I, I made the case for not going to a literary agent by the end of my book proposal. Uh, and the reason was that I realized I didn't want to be exclusively talking to artists. And this, this came to me from being an outsider to the idea of art itself, because I never studied art. For me, the only reason I draw is because I found certain things beautiful and I wanted to show that. So I kept that at the center of my thought. I want to speak to people in a way that I can communicate the beauty of what I'm seeing. I don't want them to also, uh, like, uh, the point is not that they also be able to do this. The point is not that you also pick up a pen and start to draw tomorrow. Mm -hmm. You could, and that would be great. And I hope I'm able to help somebody, inspire someone in that way. But that is not the reason why this book is being put together. And th this this line between you know the, the the these two reasons it also is a line between your two audiences this the first audience the one that wants to also become watercolorist or pen and ink artists is a much smaller audience although it is very clearly defined it's very clear what they want so yeah. you can be you can give it to them well but it's all and it's uh they have a they're the ones who are going to act though so there it's a delicate balance because if you if you are speaking to hobbyists they want the book. If you're speaking to everyone, it's hard for them to see why do I want the book, right? Mm -hmm. So 
anyway, but I do see your point about not wanting to be just a teacher, but also wanting to, to make the art that, and it's about the art as I'm doing the art for you to look at. I'm not doing the art for you to, to learn a skill. I'm doing it for you to look at the art. Yeah. 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 So like if you're a poet, makes, nobody's, right. nobody buys a book of poetry to learn how to write poems. Exactly right. right. So they this is this that. what you just said is the exact crux of what I was thinking that because I came to drawing sneaky art from being a writer, I, I would write stories, I would write poems and you don't write poems in order to impress other poets. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Every poet is always with every poem making a case for poetry. Yeah. Why it is useful to read a poem. Never have to write a poem ever in your own life. There are people I know, and I'm one of them, who sub who on Instagram follow poetry channels. And all these guys, all these channels do is they post a different poem every day. And that's what I want from it. I want to be pushed out of my world. And I want to have yes. something in my scrolling experience that suddenly knocks me in a different way. Right, exactly. And that's this is, I think, what a, a social media artist can be. Just like you say, that uh, if you're just putting out a drawing every day, it's it's exactly like that poet that you have taken the time and the artistry to see this piece of the world or imaginary thing and presented to the audience in this way. Yeah, you you are that poet giving the content every day. I mean, we yeah. content is such a bad word, right? Giving the creativity. <laughs> uh, yeah. So why why couldn't the artist just make the art? That I agree. That's the, I, there, I always feel this kind of two-sidedness about teaching art that I, I enjoy it. It's fun. I love talking with other artists, but I, I hope that's not everything. I hope that's not it. Like that's all I'm good for is learning how to, what brush to use. <laughs> right. Yeah. So. Because I think I, this is, this is also like this, uh, like, so let me think about how I want to say this. Like, I think very hard about Therefore, I think very hard about how do people consume art and what is the place that it has in their lives. The final answer might not be a book or that might not be the way to reach the most number of people. Instagram might be a great way to reach the most number of people. Well, why but not both, Think about what is the value of doing that. Why do you why, care? Just do both, right? Why wouldn't you? Or just do both. Just yeah, do all of them, right? But <laughs> what makes somebody in this multimedia world today with infinite screens uh, put money towards something? How to get paid is a whole question, right? Like you, how to get an audience is easy. You just be interesting. How mm -hmm. to get paid, that's a whole different question, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What are some ways that uh, you've thought about it now? Because as independent artists, this is something that we are always thinking about and we are always looking at how the world and the market around us is changing. Uh, you were speaking about oil paintings and immediately when I think about selling oil paintings, I think that I'm first of all limited to where I can display them. Right. Immediately, my geography is paramount to how well am I going to sell. And my network at getting yeah. into a gallery. Yeah, I and... was thinking about selling them in Canada because here I am in Montreal. Uh, so my paintings are not actually a very good fit for the art market in Montreal. It's very contemporary here. Um, whereas in, say, Alberta, where I'm from, you go to Banff, full of landscape paintings. They love landscape paintings because it's a national park and people come from everywhere to appreciate the landscape, but they're only landscape paintings of Banff. Like, it doesn't matter that you went to Portugal and painted, they don't care, mm -hmm. right? So then I'm like, oh, I didn't realize that. So you, 
you almost have to live there to be a landscape painter. It's not that I'm a landscape painter. It's that I'm from Banff and I paint this mountain, right? So yeah, your audience just shrinks and shrinks and shrinks to the person who's going to make the decision to buy that painting. Yeah, very hard. Very hard to make the fit. Um, and that questions of elitism, we talked to who who has money for paintings. And I mean, they are kind of useless, right? They are totally a luxury. So, I mean, I, my mind goes to this thing you're doing with your podcasts where you have the patron, where you have, the, you're an, enough of an interesting person and, or you're bringing interesting things together for people. You're, you're mediating the culture and they just want to be with that. They want to be part of that, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, that's definitely been a huge hit for a lot of people is, is uh, putting out your shingle and asking for the subscription. So when you're, an art teacher, it's easy. You just say, here's another lesson. Would you like to buy it? And it's a, it's like a transactional kind of thing. When you're an art, let's just call them influencers, you're having, you have to provide an a, a aspirational lifestyle, right? That, that the art that you're doing is so inspiring and, uh, you know, illuminating and brings joy to your life. Or there's that phrase about art is to make, to remind you that you have a soul. <laughs> that is why we make art. So you have to be offering somebody that whatever, let's call it trend, transcendental experience that they're going to actually say, oh, I'll pay $5.99 a month to be a member of that. It's, it's weird, right? It's hard to, to make that jump into people. So again, like I could, you, I could be crass for a minute. Uh, there's this kind of patron where it's just about, I'm a beautiful person and you'd maybe would like to see me every month. Like you'd like to see me on camera or you'd like to see me talking to someone or you'd like to talk directly to me. It's so easy for people to say, well, yeah, I want to watch that beautiful person. I'll sign up. Right. So your art has to be as attractive as your supermodel, mm -hmm. <laughs> right. To be, to be, to live in that world. You, it's a, yeah, it's a whole different lifestyle. So I, I thought, definitely thought about doing that, but I, I haven't died. I haven't done the, you know, haven't diving in. What's the word? Haven't made that step to try to do that kind of selling, because you have yeah. to sell something to live. And you, I mean, if I might put words in your mouth, you're selling this kind of content, philosophy and discussion, right? I mean, both of us would probably rather that people just love our drawings enough to just have a stream <laughs> of watching us draw, right? <laughs> it so, would make uh, life simpler. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it'd be more enriching for us, I guess. So I don't know. Maybe it's that we have to build ourselves up till we're ready for it. Uh, like I also write, uh, I also write a bit like part of being an art, an urban sketcher and a blogger is there's a lot of writing involved, but I also write fiction. And one thing that writers often say is that you have to write an idea that people want, that people actually like, like, it's not a matter of, oh, I'm sick of whatever vampire books. I'm not going to write a vampire book because they're too popular. That's like the dumbest thing you can say, right? I'm not going to mm -hmm. write this because it's too popular and it would sell. Like, that's dumb, right? So how do we do that for art, you know? So there's a lot of criticism about, say, for instance, anime, this Japanese, mm -hmm. Japanese anime, or comic books in general, that it's super accessible and it's fun and whatever, and there's a lot of criticism that it's, that it's silly or trivial or you shouldn't draw this way because it's mass-produced. But, you know, people enjoy it. So maybe you have to take a step down from your artistic goals and see, can you live somewhere where what I like about what art and what people want to watch every day, there's enough Venn diagram in the middle. There's a bit you of know. there's a bit of conceit almost in this, isn't it? Like the artist 
Right, and I'm so special. Of the artist yes, that yeah, yeah. I deserve to be paid just for my art. Why should I have to talk about it? Or why should people simply not pay me for this beauty that I'm creating as I right. create it? And and there's that whole artificial construct of the artist persona that when you get to a certain level, then you have to play that role. Like you have to be Jackson Pollock and you're this inaccessible guy who has thinks at this cerebral level and every word you speak is a gem. And so people are, are willing to pay for these gems that fall out of you. Yeah. Uh, it's a bit fake, I think in a way. Right. And if you don't play that game hundred percent, like you have to be, no, my paintings are $50,000 cost $30,000 for me to come on a podcast. I'm sorry. I don't, I don't talk for free. Like if you don't, if you're not willing to play that and be that guy, then uh, you you got to have that arrogance, right? Yeah. So it's the same as politics or being a rock star or whatever, right? You have to have that uh, arrogance to be able to do it. Right? Yeah. And that, yeah. that arrogance mixes, like it's, it mixes with humility and it mixes with, uh, like the the incredible pride mixes also with complete self abasement uh, in very interesting ways because part of it is self preservation. Like you can't really be an artist if you don't believe in yourself. Like you have to really right. have this overweening confidence, and sometimes it's fake confidence. Like you're faking it in a till you make yeah. fake it till you make it sort of mentality in a in a microcosm that I need to believe first in myself before others can start believing in me. So yes, in yeah. that respect, you do need a pride that uh, dismisses the opinions of others or disregards what others might think. But in the other, uh, the, the flip side of this is that then you do have this tremendous ask that we put on them that please buy my work and I hope you like it. And now suddenly I have to care about what you think because how is it going to sell? Yeah. So there's this the the these two di this dichotomy that we have to sort of straddle in different ways. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It's gonna be it's interesting to figure out how to how to make that jump. And I mean, I think this is also why not everyone has something that's that all consuming, right? So one thing about you know my career as an urban sketcher, which is arguably ended, but during that time. Uh, you're traveling around and enjoying experiencing things. It's actually kind of casual. It's kind of chill. You're just like, let's go to this nice place and it's a beautiful day and we're just having a good time, right? What it's almost like a luxury. It's a luxury to just live this wonderful lifestyle, right? But it's not actually that serious. You know, the, the, you're having a coffee and you're drinking your espresso and you're sketching. It is really just about enjoying yourself. So, in some senses, isn't that wonderful? You get to say, I want to have this great time and you're going to enjoy it so much you're going to buy the book, right? But you're also, I mean, that's what, like it's that intersection. This is what people want is to live a good life and and uh, you are offering inspiration to people. There's honestly a real good, a good model here to be had, like live a good life and, and take from the world and, and, you know, lighten your spirit, right? Don't be so depressed. Chill out. Buy a book, <laughs> take a class. I'll show you to have fun. Come with me to Italy. We'll have a ton of fun, right? And so you you can get over that. I that's how I got over that arrogance issue. That it's not like I'm the greatest. It's like this thing we're doing is pretty cool. Wouldn't mm -hmm. wouldn't you like to do that with me? <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah, 
So uh, in that light, let's finally talk about 30 by 30 direct watercolor. Uh, tell me how this project started. Like, uh, how did you conceive of it? Yeah, so um, it's a marathon rather than a sprint. So with one week, 100 people, it's a sprint. Like, can I get it? Can I hit that goal of 100 people in only five to seven days? But the 30 by 30, I want, and it's not just me, uh, the other co-creator is Uma Kelkar, who you've had on your class. So what we wanted was to model for people what daily practice is like. So you're constantly fielding this question as a, any kind of art teacher, how, how do I get better? And you're constantly saying, well, you just have to do more work, right? Like, uh, you, you know, I, I've shown you what to do, but you don't actually have the physical skill. So I always liken it to weightlifting. You can't, you just can't lift that weight. It's just too heavy for you. doesn't matter what you've learned. doesn't matter what I tell you, you can't lift it. Mm -hmm. So you have to go lift those a hundred times until you can. So the, the experience of the marathon is to feel what it's like to lift the weight. That when you get to day 15, you're starting to get tired. And when you get to day 20, you're wondering if you're going to make it to the end. Why did I even start this? Da, da, da. And maybe though also you're experiencing what doing your scales is like. So a musician who gets up every morning and does their scales, uh, they are keeping themselves limber, right? They're keeping themselves in the zone of all their skills are at peak at all times, right? So daily practice elevates your instinct about the, the watercolor, especially. There's so much in watercolor that's instinct. Is the fluidity of the paint correct? Do I have the right amount of water? Is the paper, the, you know, is the humidity right? So you're you're tuned up by daily practice in a way that if you only do one every six months, you don't have that instinct. So you can tell people that, but it's not the same as making them feel it. So that's why 30 days doing it every day. What can we do to get you into that zone where you are going to say to me, oh my God, I've made the best painting of my life and I don't even just came out of me so easily. How did that happen? It happened because you practiced every day and now I don't have to tell you anymore. Now you understand it. Now you're telling other people, oh, this is what you have to do. You have to keep lifting the damn weights. You actually can't physically do it until you can physically do it. So that's, that's, <laughs> that was the goal is to get people to, to feel what it is to be a, a practicing artist. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and did you start it at a time where you also had a, like a personal motivation to do this 30 day project? Well, also everything I do is cause I want to do it. So it was like, how do I buy myself an opportunity to paint whatever I want for an entire month? <laughs> so if I make an event where I have to do this with everybody, then I can just say, no. I'm not doing the dishes, I'm not painting the fence, like all that stuff's off the table because this month I'm, I'm only doing painting. So that's the other reason it's a month. And there are frankly too many of these challenges. There's too many competitors with challenges because if it's just a month, you can say, okay, it's kind of like a holiday. I, I'm going to commit and not everyone can paint all day. Like I want to paint all day, but not everybody can do that. You have kids, you have a job, whatever. So maybe you only paint an hour a day. But even to say, I'm going to take over the kitchen table and we're not going to clean it up. I'm going to leave my stuff out all month. You can probably get away with that with your spouse for one month, <laughs> but not for your whole life, right? So <laughs> it fits. Yeah. So I did it because I wanted an excuse to just paint every day for 30 days. You know? And I've, I've often said to myself, maybe I should do it twice a year so that I, 
but that, I don't know if I can afford to have that much fun in between doing <laughs> other things. But yeah, well, that was the personal reason to do it. And because even I don't practice every day. So, you know, I want that feeling of being in tune. Um, generally at the end of every season that I, of doing it, uh, then I'll stop and, you know, when it's done, I'll do a couple of pieces for the national awards show that we have here. Um, so I, I get tuned up by doing the thing and then I do my entry for the year's competition. Uh, the Canadian Society of Painters and Watercolors is what I'm in, but there's a, uh, I forget. There's a, oh, you know, what's the U.S. one? Uh, oh, you're in Canada too. There's a, everyone's got their and, national club, right? And I'm also out of these networks completely. Yeah, I have yeah. no idea about these associations. I, I mean, I only did that for fun as well, because it's a motivation. If you have to enter into the competition every season, you got to do at least one good painting. So, right, right. Yeah. Or yeah. Well, you usually have to enter three. So, yeah. So there was that just as a, it's my workout, my, my mm -hmm. tuning myself up as well. And yeah. uh, how has this project grown over the years? How, what What's the kind of numbers of people participating? Oh, you know, I, I'm so bad at that kind of thing. I'm going to say, I think we have like three or 4,000 people in the Facebook group. Now, obviously, they don't all 100% participate, right? Like a lot of them are just there to watch. But there's a lot. There's more than you can possibly. And the problem with Facebook is you actually cannot see all of them because Facebook will only show you a certain percentage of the posts, right? Uh, so we use a Facebook group, and I know there's lots of reasons to be against Facebook, but uh, it was just the easiest way to get the most people involved. But we also use a hashtag. So mm -hmm. uh, the problem with that is you have to be savvy. So if you're if you're an internet person, you can post it wherever you want and just use the hashtag. So I just, if I'm curious what other people are doing, I just search the hashtag and I see it from every venue, right? You get people's Instagram posts, you get their personal blogs, you get wherever they've posted it. Uh, but a lot of our fans are hobbyists that aren't necessarily computer people. I mean, obviously, watercolor fans tends to skew a little older. <laughs> Retired people have time to go back and become painters. So Facebook was the place we did it. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why I got on that. Every year people say, could you please not do it on Facebook because I quit Facebook? I'm like, well, no. I understand why you quit, but I can't not do it on Facebook because you don't you don't like Mark Zuckerberg. I don't like him either, but there's no other way to reach a lot of people in a convenient right. venue, right? So there is the hashtag for people who don't yeah. like Facebook. Yeah. And and how, how coordinated is, so this 30-day this journey, how how coordinated is it and how much of it, like, are you lit, actually leading this, this I am project? a big fan of as little coordination as possible. I think the reason Urban Sketchers, for instance, took off as a thing was that there was very little organization at the beginning. People just said, I'm from this town, I'm from this town, and it was the Wild West. Everybody did whatever they wanted in their towns. Now it's grown and become more organized. There's a concept of how a chapter should be run, and the whole world is becoming more European, so there's like, you have to have insurance if you're going to take a group of people out. You know, like in this, in when I started in the States, Americans don't worry about any of that, right? Mm -hmm. If you're going to teach a class in Montreal, you're supposed to have insurance and you're supposed to have a permit for a gathering of more than 20 people. Blah, blah, blah. But anyway, the best thing is when it can be self-directed with as little, I think, as little influence as possible. So I here's the framework. Here's what I'm going to do. I, I don't even say like you, like I, you don't have to do it in watercolor. I'm going to do it in watercolor. And if you want advice from me about watercolor, great. 
But if you want to do it in oils, fine. I just probably won't have anything to say to you, right? But uh, other groups, they say, no, we're going to delete everything that's digital art or no oil paintings allowed or no nudity or whatever, right? Or no drawings from photographs. It has to be from life. I don't like having rules because all it does is prevent people from producing. Uh, my goal is in these 30 days, we're going to make art every day. So why would I put barriers up, up to people, right? So I try to be as open as possible about it. Uh, I'm averse to rules because yeah. I'm not a rules follower myself. And I break all my own rules all the time. So uh, like I'll, I, I usually I'll do the 30 days in 15 days because I honestly don't actually have the full 30 days sometimes, like a project, like I have a contract I have to do or something. So I tend to do all the art in 15 days and then release it over 30 I don't hide that, right? But so in one sense, I'm preaching the important thing is doing it for 30 days straight, and then I only actually do it in 15 days or even 10 days. Um, but that doesn't matter. It's do as I, you know, do as I say, not do as I do. <laughs> so then what I try to do is just engage as much as possible during the actual 30 days. My goal is to be on the web and talking to the people who are producing the art. In that, I sort of feel it's that coach role I don't know why. It's just fun for me. Like, like you say, you shouldn't do nothing but talking to artists. But we love talking about supplies. We love talking about composition. We love, we love art, right? So, for me, it's a big party of just look what this person did, or you know, here's what, you know, oh, I can't believe this other artist I love is doing the challenge, so I can pop over and see their work. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I mean, we were also talking about how it's so solitary to be an artist because there are so many questions right. you have. That aren't, sometimes they're not even Google worthy questions. Like those answers are only found when you see someone or you peer some over someone's shoulder and you see them do a certain yeah. thing a certain way. And not and even the technical, it, like how to side, but just the why should I bother side. Mm -hmm. Like when you're doing it as a group, you just feel this more, it's just legitimized that there's a reason to stick it to the 30. Yeah. So the, the group, uh, you know, it's human nature that we don't want to let the other group members down. So, yeah. okay. So I have to admit the whole thing comes from the national novel writing month. Right. So I, I did national novel writing month and I'm like, well, there should be, this should exist for artists. So I just copied that idea. And then also Inktober was one yeah. of the first of these online challenges. So that guy, Jake Parker, uh, I worked in Dallas for a while and he was at a different studio in Dallas. So I'm like, oh, this is a great idea. This guy's invented because the group makes you actually do it. Right. Right. So uh, having the other people doing it with you is much more motivating than doing it by yourself. And you won't find enough people in your own town who want to do this crazy thing. So we have to do it over the internet. And then some of those people, you, you like drawing with them, but you probably don't want to actually know them. Some, some of them right there, they're weirdos, <laughs> these people. <laughs> so it's fun. We can do the thing. It's a kind of a contain, like artists are, um, artists are very generally introverted, right? So having a structure that we get together and do art gets us a little bit over our introversion and we can have mm -hmm. some interaction. We don't actually have to be too personal maybe with everybody. Like a lot of artists, uh, it's like a little bit of a safety net for the mm -hmm. social interaction. So there's that too. Yeah, 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 yeah. very true. And so as, as the organizer of the annual event, uh, I'm curious about the the tempo of 30 days, you know, because... I can imagine so many, there are so many people who are doing it for the first time every year. New people who've been introduced to this project. Yeah, of course, and slowly, but yeah. You start with this enthusiasm 
like you know just like how how do you run a marathon you shouldn't be trying to run your fastest mile every mile yeah. the point is to get to the end yeah but so i'm curious about the tempo of this 30 day challenge yeah. how does how does that proceed where yeah. are the lulls and where are the highs and you have to know how you are like as a marathon marathon example you i've never run one but you have to know your style like am i going to put a lot of effort and get in front of the pack and then just try to grind it out and stay up there or am i going to go as slow as possible and push at the end so you have to know yourself maybe you have to do a bunch of them before you you get to know yourself like uh, maybe you really can only put your life away for on the weekends so you know you have to prepare during the week like think about your paintings gather your reference together and then execute on the weekends so there's this strategizing right i i try to get all like what is my inspiration going to be for the event get all that med- material together in advance so i know all the paintings i'm going to do before day one. uh generally i try to do that though there was one year what i did in the first week was i did all these thumbnails so in the first uh-huh. week i did all these little drawings or the first three days and okay. then the rest of it then i executed on all the thumbnails so uh so there's that strategy how do you run your race and then what i find is it i need to just go steady and work at work as you know put out the output like two a day is pretty two paintings a day is pretty good output like you can be you can get that done but uh you know say you have two paintings a day you might have five false starts as well right uh and then you start to get tuned up and your paintings get better and better uh, just almost happens to me and i get to my best painting just before the middle and then you start mm-hmm. to get tired and then the paintings get worse and worse and worse so i have learned that what i need to do is hit my 30 before the end of the month and then in the last week just do fun stuff mm-hmm. so uh, i don't remember it was last year or the year before in the last week i just did a whole bunch of little tiny miniatures just having fun because i was like fried at that point but they were actually quite free uh studies because i was really tuned up with the sensitivity of the amount of paint and color so i could really just put down these brilliant colors and with and i just felt like the paint was really flowing but i just did these little ones because i i didn't have the energy in me to take on a big thing right so i that's what i know for me it's hit your peak make your best things and then kind of crash and then you need to just stumble across the finish line with some easy stuff <laughs> even with that's- the one week 100 people i do it i really push to get the 100 people and then i do some figure drawing at the end so you go to some mm-hmm. classes and draw some costume dancers yeah. or something yeah. just have fun as you and also spend the last, second half of it doing social stuff just talk to other yeah. people see what other people have done yeah, yeah. Uh, there's there's firstly there's the responsibility as the organizer but then there are all these other aspects like there is so much value to be gained from actually interacting with the people participating oh, can i interrupt please uh, one other thing is the other reason that i did it is i wanted to paint more with uma so it was totally just that i can't <laughs> afford to take her classes she's running these awesome classes but there she's a high end teacher now so i wanted to be able to paint with this amazing artist so i said let's do this thing together where we get to have these private painting sessions so we generally uh, check in every day how did it go and you know what are we working on and we discuss what our plan is but then we'll do a video like this where we critique each other's like look through the pieces so there's that uh, this year we're going to do some live painting together maybe so what do you say about having uh you know the interaction 
even if it's one person, even if you just have one buddy that can make the whole thing for you, that you, you're doing it for that other person that you agree to do it together. Kind of like your gym buddy, right? And then you can't yeah. let that person down. So that's the other, that was my other reason for doing it, but also what keeps me doing it is that it comes around and I'm like, oh, I wonder if I, do I have time for this? But a lot of people are expecting it. But really, I mean, this is where I get to paint with Uma for uh, three weeks or whatever, right? So that's why it keeps going every year. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's quite clever. That's actually why I have this podcast, for example. How do I command time from all these artists who are busy and mm -hmm. have so many things mm -hmm. to tell, uh, like I could use learning. How do I get them to talk to me? Why not have a podcast? Mm -hmm. Then I, I have their attention for a morning or an afternoon. Yeah, and yeah it's so always I, best I, not to be the best. Uh, you don't want to be the best at whatever in the room. You don't want to be mm -hmm. the best artist or the, the, the best, you know, the, the most famous actor. You want to be with those better people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so now, not only have you participated and organized these multiple 30 by 30 watercolor events, you've also completed them and you've built relationships with many, many participants. So what are some problems or stumbling blocks or obstacles that participants have resolved by doing this exercise that you know mm. of? Yeah, well, you know, I don't know if I can answer directly to stumbling box. I will say that this feeling of the crash in the middle is pretty universal, that people have never, not never, but they don't generally do the 30 days straight, right? So they hit the they hit the wall, the marathon or wall at some point. That's pretty common for people to say that. Like, oh my God, I'm so tired. It's pretty common for people to say, you know, I made the best and the worst paintings of my life during this process, right? Um, it's pretty common to, for people to talk about getting over failure, like helping it, helping them to get over failure that watercolor is, is kind of hit or miss, right? Especially direct watercolor. Like you, we're encouraging you to not do so much planning, but to like, to look at the world ideally or your reference and just to take your brush and your white page and start. I sometimes will do a little bit of a drawing because some subjects you just can't just do that right especially if it's right. an architectural with perspective or whatever but i say what is the least planning that you can do so if it's a gesture just a noodly gesture drawing and then yeah so people uh, often report that this helped them get over the failure that they 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 might have gotten frustrated and quit if they were just painting for themselves but they had to get their one for the day or they had to they were trying to get you know, to be able to say they did the 30. Yeah. There's another event that's uh, called Plen Air April, but it's mm -hmm. Plen April. So Plen okay. Air <laughs> April, but it's Plen April run right. together. And that's run by a group called Warrior Painters. They are, um, I don't know any of them personally, but I think they're all in anime, like the organizers are in animation, mm -hmm. um, the animation industry, like film and television. So, uh, there's some uh, emphasis on uh, digital art, I think, with that group, maybe. I don't know. But anyway, they, they're all talented commercial artists, a lot, and they have a much more kind of, they call themselves warrior painters. They have kind of a no, no pain, no gain aesthetic. So for their group, their rule is you can't post unless you did one a day. Like, uh -huh. you, like the goal is one a day. And so they're like, 
at the end, did you do one a day? If you if you did twenty nine, you lost. You can't post. Mm. So that's hardcore, right? That's uh... <laughs> yeah. I can imagine. Uh, they're not trying to prove any artistic skill to each other. It's just the discipline of it that they're trying yeah. to get out yeah, of they're, this. They're pushing the discipline angle, even with their name. Like you can see, they're pushing the idea of uh, the grind, the daily grind. Like you go to the gym. It's like, uh, what's that thing they call CrossFit, right? Mm -hmm. that, that CrossFit kind of gym. Like, we're here to, to participate at the peak. We're not here to slack off. We're here to be at this high level. So if you can't, so it's another another way to, to do one of these kind of things. Right. right. Yeah. And I apologize if I misunderstood their group. Feel free for to mail me if I said that wrong, you guys. <laughs> That's what I got when I read your, the fact about this group. <laughs> Uh, there was one year that you also did paintings in the style of other artists. Was this part of 30 by 30? Uh, yeah. So I like to have these little things for myself, like projects. Right. So uh, one year I did it all plein air, right? One year I, uh, and so one one phase was that I, I was doing portraits of artists and then paintings inspired by their works. Like I sort of thought, I've, I've thought often, you have to make a living as an artist. One way to do it is to do forgeries. Like if you could paint Monet's, you could sell as many Monet's as you painted, right? People would buy them if you just made good renditions of the, you know, forgeries. I, I don't mean pretend they're real Monet's, which would be fun to try, but I mean, just say to do their replicas. And obviously there's a whole industry in China of this uh, painting these replicas, right? Uh, though I don't think that it's so big anymore. Now, what I've seen is you send your Instagram to them and they send you back an oil painting of an of your, like you do this, you send your Instagram and they send you back a painting. Mm -hmm. So, but anyway, um, I thought there might be a book in this that like reading uh, what artists write about art, reading like quotations of what they have said about art, like what does, you know, Van Gogh feel about art and then making paintings, trying to channel that. So not that, I'm copying the Van Goghs, but I'm trying to paint based on his inspiration. So I did a little phase, and I think it was only a week out of the 30. Mm -hmm. uh, that was my, after the peak, now I'm going to, right. that was my fun, fun, small project at the end. Yeah. What actually happened with that one is I'm like, I don't think that I like art history. <laughs> I was doing all this research, and I'm like, you know, Gauguin was a horrible person. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, who's the guy I am? It was Degas. Was it Degas? And uh, there's, I can't, see, uh, now I'm doing it. I can't remember the name of the woman that he painted with. There was a, a a female artist that he painted with, but a lot of what he wrote about her was very disrespectful because it was mm. the time when the men were artists and the women were students at best, dabblers or whatever, right? And he was very dismissive of women in his writing. Uh, it was just okay to take shots at the the weaker sex or whatever. So I'm like, I don't think that the quotations from these people are actually worth uh, writing a book about. And, and I used some of these quoted words, Degas' own words, that I felt he was hanging himself with his own words. And I got some pushback. People are like, you should not talk like this. I'm like, I, I didn't say it. He said it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just telling you what this yeah, there's a There's a good <laughs> argument for not learning too much about your heroes. Yeah, especially, you know, these dead white guys uh they there was a phase when life was kind of rough right so yeah so that was interesting i did it uh there was one year 30 by 30 
I made a book of the year. Uh, it was this, I think it was the second edition of the group or of the, of the event 2019, I believe. Uh, so the book is called the apocalypse variations. Mm-hmm. So I did all the little thumbnails, they had all the paintings then I wrote the book and published it in that 30 day window. So oh, it's, wow. a, it's a sketchbook of the process of making the series, the execution of the series. And I thought it was a really interesting process. It was like a whole, uh, it was like a gallery show in a book, mm-hmm. uh, like this body of work that was made in this huge rush based on stuff I was thinking about. Uh, so it was really interesting, but it's a very thin book. It's not like, you know, it's not a serious book. It's like a diary of this event. So it was an interesting experiment. And that's why I said, having done it, you might find you can't get a book out of 30 days. It's not really enough time for a, <laughs> a serious book. But uh, it was a fun. It was a fun way to do it. So I thought I might do that with the artist quotations, and it never happened. Yeah. In, in my case, I'm drawing tiny people, and the goal is to make a tiny book of tiny people. So yes. Okay. <laughs> let's see if let's see if I can I can score on that count. Uh, part of the part of the uh, the draw for people who read my newsletter, and even the people who pay to subscribe to the newsletter, is that uh, I will after the end of the month, begins my second journey, which is to figure out self-publishing in this part of the world, to figure out firstly the logistics of it, and secondly, uh, just the creative aspect. Now, if I'm going to make a book entirely by my own direction and with my own motivations, how do I I decide what I want to do? How do Mm -hmm. I get a sense of what people care to pay money for because of course my readers are looking at my art in their inbox every week Uh, people who follow me on Instagram are seeing it on Instagram every time I post why should someone want to pay to have the book in their hands so figuring this out and doing all this work is part of what I'm offering to my subscribers once this month ends and part of that is also figuring out what makes a book like does a book need to be definitive about a subject can a book be part of a larger journey Mm. so identifying the form that it should have is also going to be an interesting thing that i figure out uh, as this project goes on okay well that'll be people love to follow that because there's always a lot of people that want to do the same put their stuff in a book there's something about seeing your work in a book form and published that legitimizes all the effort that you did it yeah so, uh yeah so people i'm sure will be interested in that yeah, yeah. there's this uh, uh very simple uh quote about how to think of yourself as a creator in today's market today's world and that's uh a, a number of uh a number of startup ceos have spoken about it and a lot of people who do this kind of who practice this on twitter and other places have spoken about it and the quote is that you're simply supposed to learn in public. And that's something that has value. So that's something I'm trying to lean more on and trying to figure out now, what do I want to learn in public? And what does that mean about, what does it mean to share it? Like, firstly, there's a vulnerability associated with sharing your misgivings and hesitations and figuring that out. But also just knowing that you don't have to be an authority on a subject to speak right. about the subject. I think that there's a yeah. sense of liberation attached to that. Yeah, I, I, I find it, it just gets you past the vulnerability. If you're trying to be an expert, you have all that anxiety of your living up to it. But if you're trying to be a student, then it's a free pass to make mistakes and 
And then people want to see the mistakes because they want to learn from them. Right. So yeah. Yeah. And there's think, an yeah, element of this this same thing about sharing imperfections and mistakes and learning in public. There's an aspect of this even in the community interaction in th direct 30 by 30 or one week 100 people both of yeah. these things have this sense of there's there's so much appreciation during the period and there is so much learning from each other people are giving clues to each other people are giving ideas for free yeah. and... there was one artist last year she did a series where it was all moving water so that was her theme i sort of people are generally get this vibe that they should pick a theme and focus on studying it which is hard to paint in the first place and very hard to paint in watercolor. And so you could see her get a handle on the subject and get better and better at it. And then she did this very interesting thing in the middle. She posted all her reference photos and said, if you guys want to try one, why don't you try mm -hmm. one too? So it was great to see a participant kind of take some responsibility for, or, or you know, take on some of that load of like, I want to engage other people too. Uh, it doesn't have to be all, I mean, it shouldn't be from all from me. There's not enough mm. me to go around. It's great if other people do that too, right? And then she had this one interest that was fascinating to watch her do, and then other people got a chance to participate. So I thought that was quite cool. Yeah. And then yeah. she actually turned it into a show. Uh, some of the paintings went up as an exhibition because you've created this body of work. Like People are sometimes surprised that you can do it in only a month. You can actually make the... the nugget that's a body of work that now it's worth showing because they're matching pieces with a, a central kind of concept yeah yeah that's it's it's super fascinating i'm not i don't think i'll be participating this year because watercolors are sort of uh, falling by the wayside <laughs> for me i'm really not really very engaged with them but simply as an as a space to see what people come up with and what uh, challenges they themselves express, yeah, you know, the hesitations they share. There is a lot to get from. It's definitely what other people schedule. are doing. Yeah, exactly. Just seeing what the group does, even just like if you go on Instagram and you follow the hashtag, uh, you know, hashtag thirty by thirty direct watercolor, then uh, you don't even have to do anything. It just comes to you every day. Right. Uh, yeah. You don't. I didn't know if you knew that. You can follow hashtags as well as people. Of course, you knew that. Maybe some of the other readers don't uh, that's just one way to to like passively just absorb it all month and you get the fire hose of information <laughs> yeah all right well so this was a lovely conversation mark yeah thank yeah thank you thanks so for i mean i was great to hear that you are starting your own thing i was only joking about too many events the opportunity for people to go from event to event i think is great because it that can be your practice as a hobbyist is just like, I don't have to take classes. I don't have to go pay some guy in, you know, Italy to take me on a workshop. I can do one of these online things every month if I want to. So yeah. Yeah. I hope your event uh, starts to take off. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you, dear listeners for, well, listening. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Find links to Mark's work and the link to the 30 by 30 Direct Watercolor Facebook group on the episode description. For links to all the various things we spoke about, also check out the Substack link in the description. With every episode, I share with my Substack readers the extensive show notes and all the interesting links to all the interesting tangents that come up during the conversation. 
Thank you for your time and attention. I'll see you in the next one.